You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley. I'm joined by my co-host Jen Wilkin and JT English. How are we doing, y'all? It's yes. not been great. No, it's not. <laughs> I feel like we're at a tipping point. Like I feel like this is a breaking point in our relationship. JT has been chewing audibly into the microphone. And I, did, I did it once, and it was who brought the coffee kick in. What? It wasn't me. It was Ryan. Ryan, Ryan thank production. you. Thank you, it's Ryan. It's really good coffee Exact cake. producer, Ryan. I just had a bite. Yeah, right. In the, the middle of... I don't think it's as bad as you think it was. Oh, yeah. Well, listen, uh, for all the listeners out there that can hear JT smacking... I'm sorry. Let JT me, English. Let me apologize. I did not know you could hear it, but I do want to thank Ryan that it was good coffee cake. Oh, there we go. Well, Ryan brought some good coffee cake. Uh, and on today's episode, we get a chance to chat with... How did you like that turn right there? It was really good. I'm a professional. On today's episode, we get a chance to chat with Mark Sayers about his new book, The Reappearing Church. Mark is a cultural commentator, writer, speaker, so- highly sought after for his unique and perceptive insights into faith in contemporary culture. He's a pastor in Melbourne, Australia. He's written a number of books. We talk about two of those books in particular today, The Disappearing Church and The Reappearing Church. I thought it was a really interesting, like I thought it was an interesting conversation. Yeah. Thrown in was the cool accent. So yes, I mean, yeah. anything, anything. No, he's fascinating. He he's is. fascinating. He's one of those guys whose his insights are just like, it feels like he's putting his thumb right on the topic and mm-hmm. issue. He's not talking around something, but literally right on it. I agree. I agree. So we hope you enjoyed the discussion. All right, so we have Mark Sayers on the line. Mark, how are you? Uh, very well, thank you. That's great. Now, where are you calling in from, Mark? Uh, I'm in my, my home in Melbourne, Australia. Okay. Um, we're, we're recording here in Dallas, Texas at 4.07 p.m. Mark, what time is it there? <laughs> it's uh, 7.07 a.m. Oh, my. The next day, so yeah. I'm technically in the future. You're in the future. In the future. I can't imagine recording a podcast yeah. at 7 a.m. That would be... It'd be, it would be bad for me. It'd be bad for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that um, it would probably, you'd, your breath would definitely smell worse than it does right now. <laughs> Ouch, Kyle. Uh, you said a lot of things about me before, but that one. Well, I'm just saying your your breath has a tendency to get progressively better through the day. <laughs> it's the coffee. Mm-hmm, the that's what it is. Yeah. It's like, we love the coffee smell. Uh, Mark, are you, are you coffee or tea? Is that what's your, what's your drink of choice in the morning? Uh, definitely coffee. Um yeah, I drink. I mean, I like tea, but definitely begin with coffee okay. uh, is the way to start, particularly if you're from Melbourne. Oh, really? Is is that is that like a... Coffee's a big deal in Australia. Really? I had no idea until uh, I went. Okay. Wow. Did you go to Melbourne? Yeah. Were you in Melbourne? I was in Sydney. Okay. But man, it's good coffee. And apparently it's the Italian yeah. influence. Is that correct? Yeah, well, it, there's two there's two influences. So Melbourne's sort of the hub of it. So you had the Italians bring the espresso machines in the 50s. But really, really interestingly, you had a temperance movement in Melbourne just at the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century. And that's why they created all these coffee houses. So that's sort of, you can actually thank evangelicalism for mm. good coffee in Melbourne, which very few people know. Praise wow. the Lord. Man, God does work in mysterious ways. And I've, I've been looking for things to thank evangelicalism for lately, right, so yes. that's good to add to my list. <laughs> that's good, is, yeah. is, is, the, is the coffee presence in, in Australia. Well, listen, um, I know I said this off air before we jump on, but uh, Mark is uh, a, a noted author. He is a cultural commentator. He's written a number of books. I listed them off the introduction, but I just got to say, and I told you this off air, that Vertical Self, which I think is one, is is that, was that your first book, Mark, or an early book? Uh, Second, 
second. Yeah. Okay. So Vertical Self was a book that Mark wrote that at just at the right time, I found that book or that book found me and just was so helpful. And so it's a real treat to have you on today talking specifically about your most recent book, which is The Reappearing Church. Get that title right? The Reappearing Church. Yes, Reappearing Church. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, where did the church go, Mark? <laughs> like, is it, is it, uh, I think, I think of appearance and reappearance and disappearance language as the language of a magician. So if the church is reappearing, has it disappeared? So maybe before we jump in to talk about this book, we might need to kind of set as a precursor, um, what, from where is the church reappearing and, and where has it been? Well, I, I wrote a book, um, uh, called Disappearing Church. And I think that was really trying to capture a sense around 2015. I just sensed this profound uh, sort of almost atmosphere of anxiety around the future of the church. I think what happened at that moment, particularly in the United States, was the reality of post-Christianity really began to bite. Um, I think probably in places like Australia that had been around a while longer, um, but there was this sense that we started to see, I think particularly with emerging generations, that they weren't being disciples in the way that we'd hoped. Um, the statistics in, in some denominations started coming through. So I just began to, I guess, capture that sense of, of what did it feel like? Like, hang on, this thing's disappearing. So it was, in a sense, it was a wake-up call. Um, and then with this book, I really felt the Lord sort of challenged me um, to reframe that and and to look at this particular you know, moment in time in the West as what if this is the kind of moment where God actually wants to do a new thing? And what if you want to reframe that fear and anxiety about the future of the church or, um, you know, what's happening in the culture actually is the kind of moments where God tends to renew his church. Yeah. So what are some of those, what, what are the things that are generating a lot of heat or a lot of that anxiety? What do you feel like are the panic inducing things that have emerged around the quote unquote disappearing church. What are what are the things that make us anxious? Is it the removal of social or, or political power, or is it influence? Is it the degradation of institutions of trust? I mean, what do you feel like in your study? Uh, what is kind of the what is the anxiety? What's the what's the principal concern? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the first one is just that this this shrinkage of the church in the West is is a. Uh, a statistical reality. My, my de- denomination and churches here in Melbourne are, um, you've got a few which are growing, but the majority are shrinking, and that's happening all across the West. Um, and so there's just that reality, number one, of just less people uh, engaged in their faith, going to church. The second one is you're seeing also a weakening of institutions um, across the board. Um, you talk at different seminaries and different different Christian parachurch organizations, denominations, there is a sense that there is there is a weakening. Um, the third thing I would say too is there's an increased slip um, in how the uh, uh, a switch, if you like, how the culture perceives the church. For a lot of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, there was a sense where the Christians were the moral people, and uh, you know, like people stayed away from the church because they saw the church as too moral. There's been this really interesting switch in the culture in the last, I think, particularly five years, where increasingly the church is not seen as too moral, it's actually seen as immoral. And there's almost this principled step that people take when they step out of engagement with Christian faith. Um, and then and then I think that the last one is an ability of culture to profoundly influence people within the church. Like, there was a dynamic before where you could have this Christian 
um, posture towards the culture, which was one of retreat. Um, oh. Fundamentalism, and essentially, was a retreat from the world. But it's really interesting with globalization, with technology, um, with our culture is everything that's far, used to be far, is now close. That um, you can have a kid, say, who goes to a Christian you know, school, who goes always homeschooled, who goes to a church, but their cell phone is discipling them in their bedroom. Mm-hmm. So there's this element that we realize that the ability for culture to shape people in ways that are opposite to the gospel is incredible, incredibly powerful right now. Um, and I think, I think also just lastly, I think the fact that those almost a feeling across the West that those protections that the church had in culture um, are actually disappearing or possibly under pressure at the moment. Mark, one of the things I've heard you talk about before that you just mentioned there that I'd love to see you tease out in terms of kind of this big idea of what's happening in our cultural moment is, I think I think the, the category you've used in the past is progressivism, the new Phariseeism, and this kind of move that you just talked about of, because I, I became a Christian about 15 years ago, received social capital, was seen as somebody that was in line with kind of the cultural trends, but then immediately all of a sudden I'm I'm now supposedly out, you know, because I'm a Christian, I'm somebody who is seen as... Uh, uh, not a moral person, I think was a language that you used. And that has been something that's just been radically disorienting, not only for me, but I think for the church, when you're supposed to, the, the institution that you've been a part of as a church is actually, uh, and in some parts of the West still, that's still true. We live in Dallas, Texas, and that's still probably partially true here, but that's certainly not true from where I was from in Denver, where the church used to be something that was contributing to the flourishing of the community, is now seen as something that is actually contributing to the to the uh, disintegration of human flourishing is that is that kind of what you're trying to say yes I, I think I think there's been a profound shift of mood particularly in the United States I mean in Australia there's always been a, a much longer suspicion around religion and I'd always find it when I would come to the United States and be on a plane next to someone or even check into a hotel and just talking to the people behind the counter that I'd almost be bracing myself when I mentioned that I'm a I'm a a pastor, that there would be this reaction. And, and I was always shocked in America when there wasn't a reaction at times. Um, but I think like you guys have, have sort of caught up to where we're at and perhaps even in a more intense way. It so happened I think so one quickly. Of the big things in culture, it happened very quickly. And, and I think what happened is, you know, particularly in the 1970s, there was an intensification of both the American left and right, which has taken um, the American left and right, it started to take on a more radical form. And um, that's slowly been playing out, but it's taken a real intensity now where, in a sense, I think what happened with post-Christianity, people's search for meaning doesn't disappear. It is, it is recast onto something, and particularly around politics, the reaction to Christianity and some of the political choices of American evangelicalism it came home to roost in a very powerful way that is felt just even when you're on the street or interacting online with people. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because when you talk about that mapping of meaning onto something, that like it's going to go somewhere. This is one of my, um, this is one of the, I guess, the, what feels like just pastorally right now, what feels so pressing and yet can feel quite a bit paralyzing, which is that these different kind of ideological streams that have roots that go beyond the present moment, right? I mean, like a lot of the things that we're talking about as plaguing the church or as uh, temptations for the church or as areas of capitulation for the church. These are not things that in their substance are, are incredibly novel, but they are hitting the church and, and the global West in particular when radical individualism has so set in 
it's it's like so firmly entrenched. And so that's one of the questions I had for you is how does Christian witness flourish when everyone is convinced they're an autonomous silo? Like how do you even get the conversation going uh, when everybody has been really like enculturated, acclimated uh, to this idea of the auton- the radically autonomous self? Because it seems like regardless of political ideology, it seems like as that middle has fallen out, there are as many um, opportunities and there are as many kinds of distinctions as there are selves and people. Where do you even start when it seems like everybody is an island unto themselves? And how can the church's witness be uniquely captivating and persuasive in the midst of that kind of autonomy? Mm. Well, I think this is one of the points of opportunity um, that I'm trying to point out to people um, in this book. If you look at the West, there's a series of intensifications of individualism. I think about my grandfather who grew up in a working class neighborhood. You know, he, he wasn't a believer, uh, but he was part of a trade union. He knew the people in his neighborhood. Um, and so it's almost that first wave of um, uh, individualism. So it was still individualism. He, he wasn't connected to a faith community, but you had these loose associations which gave you a sense of social cohesion and, and embeddedness. Um, then you push that forward, that just starts to slowly ebb away. Now, I reckon a lot of my ministry was in a time of, of individualism, but it was like the the full effect of that individualism hasn't hit home. So, mm-hmm. you know, after my grandfather, you saw this intensification in the 60s, and then, you know, even from the 90s to the, the early 2000s, there was this sense of like, hey, I can do what I want. The world had this very optimistic tone, particularly from the fall of the Berlin Wall, Started to, started to get hit with 9-11 and then the global financial crisis. But there was this period was like, hey, the world's our oyster. We can just travel. The internet's going to connect us. The internet's going to provide this social lattice that will give a sense of meaning but still preserve our individual autonomy. But I think what's happened in the last three years is the full intensification, particularly since the advent of, you know, it's almost the second act of the, of the iPhone and the second act of social media, is you're seeing a social isolation of an increased intensification that is now hurting um, all across the West. Um, the city of Hamburg in Germany, I think it's like 50% now, people are leaving one person alone. Scandinavia, that, that's trending up in, in you know, the downtown of, of, Ameri- of Ameri- many of America's most influential cities, the single-person households is becoming normative and you know this has never happened before this has only happened before in history when there's been wars and a lot of people being killed um and you're seeing like just just in the last few years the, the rise in mental health the rise in isolation places like japan and south korea are now planning their their future welfare government policy on the fact that it'll be what they call loner culture single people living alone so what i'm seeing now is people who are coming and are hungry for just some human connection. And no longer does radical American individualism that has been exported to the world, no longer does that look as sexy as it did in the past. It now looks actually restricting and painful. And so there's actually a hunger of people saying, hang on, this is not good. You know, there's an openness now to community. Now, the B side of that is people don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's this tremendous hunger for community, but people have not been raised to actually connect with community and connect. So 
You've got people coming into church going, hang on, I'm hungry for community, but all the ways that they've learned will actually sabotage that. Yeah. I think we need to recognize there's an opportunity, but the second opportunity is similar to what the church did in, in the, you know, the late antiquity or the dark ages is they had to actually form alternate forms of community, which taught people again how to order their lives and to live in connection with other people. So I don't think churches are grabbing that. Like I've been, thinking, I haven't, I haven't done this, but I've been thinking like, um, you know, there's courses like the Alpha Course and these things out there. What, what would happen if you actually had a course saying, we're going to teach, you know, we're going to maybe share the gospel, but also at the same time, we can actually show you how to actually build a functioning life. Like, like I wondered whether there's actually some evangelistic opportunities that we're missing that are actually going to start to open up where we, we, you know, preach the gospel to people, but also show them actually how to live that out in community. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your copy today. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your your copy today. Okay, so that's that's the problem out there, but I'm also always seeing everywhere I travel around the problem that's in here. Like we've got the problem within the church of the the lure of the autonomous self, which affects everything from the way that we read scripture to what we expect from a worship uh, service. Do you see the the growing trend toward even younger people gravitating back toward liturgical environments or liturgical traditions? Is that a reflection of, of this growing rejection of the lure of the autonomous self? I, I think I think somewhat. I mean, th- there's different moments when you see, um, you know, there's a continual, uh, you know, like interest in liturgical forms and higher forms of church, um, you know, generationally that happens. You know, mm-hmm. you can even go back to the you know, 19th century and, you know, people turning to high Anglicanism and, you know, different things like this. Um, I mean, I think the big trend in this is a, a more disconnected engagement with um, church where people see that they belong but are rarely there. So regular attendance, 
becoming, I'm coming every four to six to even 10 weeks. And I began to notice this a few years ago where you'd bump into people and you're like, hey, I haven't seen you around church for a while. And they're like, I oh, know, I love it. I'm, I'm committed there. And then you don't see them for another 10 weeks. Now, in the past, those people would think, I need to go more regularly. But now that's actually seen as a normative way of engaging. And that's because belonging now in the West doesn't mean you actually have to be physically present. So this is a huge challenge that I think, you know, it, just say you go to church of a thousand people and people are turning up every six to 10 weeks. That means on Sunday, you might only have 200 people there, but you've got a thousand people who belong to your church. And this actually starts to hit at the critical mass sustainability reality for, for churches. But again, there's an opportunity here that I think when you look at what it is, is what we're actually seeing is post-Christianity, as we're experiencing it, burns up cultural Christianity. And I actually think there's an opportunity there, particularly so many forms of American church growth are centered around corralling and, and creating programs for cultural Christians. And to be 100% honest, it, it's actually painful. Like, who wants to try and convince people to just come to this program, to try and come? You know, like, half-committed people are some of the worst people to lead. What I'm seeing... I've been saying that about my staff team. I mean... (laughs) Mark, Mark, you just just set them up too easily for that one, man. Okay, we're going to have to to settle that debt on the other end of this phone call, but... No, but that's a, you said a really important right. thing. Yeah, yeah, JT yeah. is he mocking did. it because. I'm not mocking it. I want to stay on it. That's uh-huh. why I wanted to stop it. Half committed uh-huh. people right. are some of the hardest people. There's to no lead. doubt. And that's cultural Christianity. Like there's kind of this and nominalism. We're in the Bible Belt. Yeah. So we feel some level of familiarity with that. That's this. right. Keep going, Mark. That's good. Uh, I remember having this conversation like with about week after week. So we got our 5 p.m. service is, is mostly millennials. And I kept having this conversation. I just would, you know, after I preached, just. Uh, down the front and people come and talk to you and, and I had the same conversation multiple weeks in a row which is hi I, I grew up with in a church every one of my Christian friends has turned their back on their faith I'm the last one and, and I began to realize that if, if you're in my 5 p.m. service and you're a millennial you're actually no longer a cultural Christian because the entire weight of the, ch- of the culture is against you being in church hmm. And, and, and like I felt the Lord point out to me, like, like Mark, what you've actually got here is something new. It's actually a remnant. Mm-hmm. Like if you've got a millennial now who's turning up and is like, every one of my Christian friends has lost their faith, but mm-hmm. I'm hanging in here. And, 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 you know, I still love Jesus. That has to change profoundly how you, you view church. And actually, my, my encouragement in the book is actually stop looking for hurting cultural Christians actually start building a remnant because increasingly those cultural Christians are, are actually going to disappear and also they're disembedded from the church. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to I want to ask a little bit about is there a historical precedent? Is there something that we've seen in the past, Mark, that can shed a little bit of light on the present moment? Like is there are we in a completely new wave? And if so, in the global West, is that not true somewhere else? Like, are there are there brothers and sisters and church leaders around the world that have already walked this path? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, first, just a few. And I mean, I think it was Mark Twain who said, "You know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes." Mm. Um, so I think there's a whole bunch of unique realities to this moment. Um, but again, too, history is a really interesting um, research field to look at. So, you know, first of all, one thing I'd say is when you read the New Testament, 
you notice these characters who are hanging around the edges of synagogues, the God-fearers. Yeah. These are Gentiles who, like, why are they there? Um, they're not Jewish. Um, they, they don't want to completely convert to Judaism. But you keep seeing them crop up. And part of the reason they're there is the myth of Rome is starting to fall. And the story that Rome told was that it's going to provide this peace. It's going to provide endless glory. It's going to unite the known world. Um, you just have to bow your knee to see, bow your knee to Caesar. But at the point that, you know, Jesus emerges and the, and the church emerges, you know, it's turning into civil war. Um, it's becoming a parody of itself and it's a slow decline. But the first thing I would say is that what you're seeing is people drawn to an alternate story that's being lived. That's not as powerful as the bigger culture, but actually it has cut through in the real world. And those God-fearers, in a sense, become the bridge between the, the Jews and the Gentiles and the gospel goes out and, and you know, many of those people join the church. So the, I think we're going to increasingly see, I know in, I've never heard of this before in my years of ministry. We used to say that people are not just going to turn up to your church, but I know cathedrals um, around Australia are starting to have people just walk in and just say, I know nothing about this. Can you please tell me what it is to be a Christian? I've never heard of that, but it's starting to happen. We're having people call cold callers um, who know no Christian background and are saying, I'm, you know, there's, there's something happening in history. So my first question is, who are the God-fearers in this moment? Um, you know, and even migration, people... people the gospel is, if you look at the history of the gospel, when humans move around the planet in big numbers, um, that is a moment of gospel opportunity. In Melbourne here, um, we have many Persian people who have come from Iran. Many have come by places like Malaysia. Many don't, you know, are on um, refugee, um, you know, visas. And there's a tremendous move of God happening amongst Persian people, which has never happened in history. Um, they're, they're God-fearers. They're, they're questioning the West, but they're also questioning their, their country of origin. So that's the first thing. Who are the God-fearers? The second thing is, if you look at the Great Awakenings and revivals of the 18th century, you know, often we can have this faulty view of the West that everyone in, I don't know, 1200 AD went to church and just been this slow decline. It's much more like a roller coaster. And, you know, in the 18th century, we think of people like Jonathan Edwards and, and Wesley and so on. But just before Wesley, there was a period where literally Britain had the Enlightenment was happening. People were turning to science and rationality. Um, you know, I think it was St. Paul's Cathedral. I can't remember the exact date or what it was, but St. Paul's Cathedral had an Easter service where six people turned up. Um, you know, you, you had this actual moment where, like, someone like Charles Simeon, who was, you know, a, a minister in Cambridge in the 18th century, all these theology lectures were drunk. You know, like the church was in a bad state. But then all the cultural tumult of the 18th century, the beginnings of globalization that the British Empire was doing in the world, you see that after that, then there is this incredible renewal. And as I, as I looked at the history, I began to realize that whenever the culture's in tumult, whenever there's intensified globalization and people are on the move, leaving what they know behind, you see these moments of renewal. Just when people write the epitaph for the church, that's exactly when the church brings back. James Burns talked about the imagery of with renewals and revivals of it's like the surf going out. Like there's this moment if you're standing at the beach, the surf comes in, but then you see it go out. And anyone who's been near the beach knows that when it's going out and the longer it goes out, that means behind the breakers, the force is, is generating and it's going to come back in. And at the moment, it may feel like the surf's going out, 
but it's going to come back in. It's so important to remember that. So then if you were going to give intensely practical advice for the local church, what would be your your elevator pitch church growth strategy for those of us staring into the glare of post-Christian America? The first thing I would say is everything's going to change. Um, and, and prepare now. Like, prepare now while the surf seems to be going out um, for the surf to come back in. It's going to look differently. Um, and, and, and my sense is there's a humbling going on, particularly in America, um, with culture and with the church. And what that means is that so many of the different... This is not an elevator pitch, by the way. It's probably gone too long for an elevator <laughs> already. But there's, there's a sense where there is going to be a change. And what, Leslie Newbegin talked about the fact that... Um, he talked about secularism coming against all forms of meaning, not just not just religion, but any form of meaning in which we put our trust that is not God. And you've seen that in the United States. You're seeing that politically. You're seeing that economically. You're seeing that in, in Me Too, in Hollywood. You're looking at all these different icons and institutions are being humbled. So how do you then create a humble approach to ministry mm. where all the things that we put our trust in apart from God can no longer sustain us? Um, a future which may look leaner, but actually pushes back to the gospel. Um, so I'd start preparing that now. I would go, I would go deep with a few um, to prepare for what's going to happen next, and I would start to seek out who are the remnant. Now, really interesting in the UK, um, the, the stats um, you know, coming back is that actually atheism has dropped in the last few years. There's some just really interesting initial chats, like one in ten people in London now are going to church. Now, if you look at why is that happening, I, 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 you know, I think God's doing stuff. But Britain faced the reality of post-Christianity 10, 20, 30 years ago. And across Britain, you've seen the most remarkable prayer meetings where churches are getting together going, like, hang on, we're in trouble here. We need to actually get on our knees and contend. I last year attended at Worcester Cathedral um, this prayer meeting of all the churches in Worcester, every denomination, getting together worshipping and crying out for God to move again and to renew Britain. That only happens when you get to a certain pain point. So I would say to leaders, understand that the pain point is one to not actually make you freak out and get anxious. It's actually one to push you to your knees and actually turn to God because you can't do it in your own strength. There's not a strategy here. America is brilliant at strategizing and thinking and talking. But post-Christianity is not going to be solved by thinking, talking, and strategizing. It's going to only be solved by actually what God is doing and actually realizing how weak we are, but how strong he is. And that's the moment, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, when men and women fall on their knees and realize they can't do it, that's when God actually moves. That's way too long for an elevator pitch, but yeah. That's good, Mark. That's really good. Mark, I think, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm encouraged by that because I think instead of a, saying, hey, here's the tactical move that we think will will get us ahead of the power curve of whatever the next movement is. It is just a call uh, to return to the God of the movements of the world and the one that holds the hearts of the kings in his hands and the one that guides and directs and builds his church. One of my favorite quotes from Martin Lloyd-Jones that, that, that you're reminding me of is this. It says, when God acts, he can do more in a minute than man can do with organizing in 50 years. Yeah. 
and that's even an understatement, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Right, 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 right. uh, just that we, yeah. we are dependent upon God being gracious and merciful and doing what only he can do. Mark, we're grateful for your time. Thank you for jumping on the phone with us. Listen, if you're a listener to Knowing Faith, uh, Mark Sayers has many books. Two of the more recent ones that we've talked about today are Disappearing Church and Reappearing Church. And if you're somebody who is interested in, in considering and meditating and thinking on what is the next few years of the church in the global West, what will be some of the dynamics of those movements and the things that we should be prepared for, prepared for and mindful of, then we would encourage you to check out those books. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. Uh, I would, we'd encourage you to check out Mark's great podcast with John Mark Comer, This Cultural Moment. Yeah, that's been a big, big kind of uh, cultural listening point for us at The Village over the last several months where it's just become like a common language. Language yeah. that we're talking about regularly. Yeah, it's a tremendous resource. And so thank you for that work, Mark. My absolute pleasure. It was, it was great fun. On our next episode, we'll continue to jump back in to the, the rhythm between going through the Apostles' Creed and through the book of Acts. So we will see you next time. Grace and peace. <laughs>